Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this white, beautiful snow. It reminds us of the promise that your cleansing, powerful, atoning blood, your finished work so that we can rest, will wash our sins white as snow. I pray as we get into your word now and we consider how our common faith, proclaiming it and confessing it weekly, is a rhythm of grace where you write us into your story. I pray you would meet us here. Lord, let it not be abstract to us or intellectual. Lord, would the truth of your grace and gospel go to our hearts? Would you remind us afresh that you have known us and loved us and saved us and you long to make us holy? You long that by your mercy we might adorn the gospel here in this church and in Santa Fe because you have many here in this city who need to hear the truth proclaimed humbly, boldly, with a simple focus on Christ your Son. Do that, I pray. Amen. Now, how many of you have seen that blessed B-plus movie from the late, uh, well, not late, from 2011, Soul Surfer? Anyone? Soul Surfer? I might have not only seen it, but uh, had, uh, had teary eyes throughout the entire thing as I sat sandwiched in between my two little girls. Soul Surfer is a movie about Bethany Hamilton. Bethany Hamilton is the, the woman that was uh, on her way, or young girl, I guess, who was on her way to becoming a professional surfer. Lived on the North Shore of Kauai. Some of you have been there, Princeville, uh, what's it called, Hanalei area. Her parents were surfers who moved to Hawaii while the getting was still good in the 70s, and she grew up there surfing every day of her life. In her early teens, she began to win competitions. She was noticed. And she, uh, she was living the dream. I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that for someone whose life is dedicated to pursuing a career as a professional surfer. Until one day, some of you know, she went out with some friends, was paddling out, and uh, was attacked by a shark. And the shark got her entire arm, basically right up to the top of the bone. As you can imagine, this tragedy, this accident, was, was soul-crushing for her at the time. She had the support of a wonderful family and a church. She attended a little outdoor Calvary chapel up there on the North Shore. But as the movie portrays the book, which is her story, she is filled with questions about why. Why did this happen? Why me? Why this suffering? Why this tragedy when I was right on my way to, you know, being sponsored by Quicksilver and getting parts in the next surf video to come out? I think we can all relate to those questions and the opportunity for a downcast soul and self-pity that come along with the trials in our lives. This Continued until she got on a plane with some other kids in her youth group and went and spent two weeks serving in simple ways in Thailand, which uh, was in deep need of help after, many of you remember, that massive tsunami hit its shores. 
She came back with a renewed strength in the simple and core beliefs of the gospel. I believe in God and in Jesus who loves me and in the Holy Spirit who sustains me even through this suffering. She worked her way back up into the amateur circuit, amazingly a one-armed surfer. And she won. She won uh, the big amateur competition on the North Shore. To everyone's surprise, she amazed the crowds. And of course, afterward, she was being interviewed, 25 microphones right in her face. And they said, how did you do it? How, how, did, you, how did you overcome? Who do you give credit to? What's your reason? What's your purpose? What do you believe about all this? And I think she hit the nail right on the head. To paraphrase, she said this, after my accident, I confess, I didn't know if I would ever surf again. I didn't know if I would ever be happy again. How could I be happy when I couldn't wrap my arms around my own surfboard, much less my mom and dad. But after I got back from Thailand, and after I was reminded of the promises of God in my own life, I now know that even in spite of this tragedy, I can wrap my arms around more people than I ever could have if I had both intact. She proclaimed the common faith that we as all Christians share. God is our creator. This life is beautiful and it's broken. None of us can escape challenges, but Jesus, his son, is with us in those challenges and the Holy Spirit has promised to bring us through. Do you believe that this morning? Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? In the beauty and the brokenness, and the ups and the downs, and the glory and the challenges of our lives. As I watched this movie, and again, I confess, tissue in hand, I just thought, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to be able to go through big things and small things, the hard things. And on the day when I'm asked, why and what do you believe? I want to proclaim simple hope in a simple gospel, in a Savior who really saves sinners like me. I think there's a flip side to this story. It's, it's important. The world wants to know. I was in New York this last week. Caitlin was doing some recording in a studio out in Brooklyn. I was doing a study leave where I read and prayed and worked and I was planning on fasting, but <laughs> whatever. And I spent some, some great time in Manhattan with a good friend of mine from childhood. He doesn't believe in God. I love him so much. He's a dear friend. and He just kept asking me, he's like, well, there's all these religions. What's so special about Christianity? I don't get it. What's, what's different? I mean, there's all these religions. I just, I go to the buffet, put a little bit of this, a little bit of, little bit of that, make the one that I want. Is there anything special or unique or different about what you guys believe? And he said, I hope there is because religion has a really big problem right now. Like, people aren't into it especially younger people. He works in, in this industry, but it was really funny. He told me, he goes, man, you guys really need to do a rebrand. Like Christians, you really need to do some rebranding here. So when we come every week to confess a common faith, 
to be placed once again on the rock who is Christ. And these simple 12 truths that revolve around the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As we come to enter into this rhythm of grace every week, we are, we are not only being prepared to share like Bethany Hamilton, but to the answer the question of our friends who we dearly love. What is so special about Jesus? And that's why my contention this morning is simply this, that as we confess our common faith weekly, it is a rhythm of God's grace. He writes us into the call and response, the jazz of this service together weekly through this rhythm of grace. It's a unique moment where we as the people of God, the children of God, can harmonize in that jazz. Where we can say, look, we've got a lot of differences. We've got a lot of preferences. But on these things, these simple truths, we can agree. Confessing our common faith is a rhythm of grace to help us navigate the confusion around us and to unite us to both our Savior and to one another. And as we go forward, there's two questions I think that are driving me this week. The, the first is, okay, how? <laughs> because confessing a common faith Using the Apostles' Creed, we could use a variety of other creeds and confessions. We have before. We could use the Nicene Creed. We could use the Statement of Chalcedon. There are options. But using the Apostles' Creed, how does this actually, how does the, doing this weekly help us to be written into that rhythm of God's grace? It's such an opportunity to become rote. In fact, I think if we were honest, it'd be one of those parts in our service where many of us would go, yeah, this is just kind of the one we do. We've just kind of always been doing this one. Or maybe, you know, eh, it kind of reminds us that we're a part of, you know, the church in the world, but I don't know. It's tradition. Is there a reason? And I want to think about that. And the second one, and, and I, this is deeply important for all of us, is does it matter to get the gospel to our hearts? Because what, what we do here as we gather is we ask the Lord to speak to us, but not just for more information in our minds. In fact, for many of us, that's the last thing you need is more information, more one-liners to use at your next dinner party. What we need is for God to get his truth from our head to our heart because we want our lives to change. We want to be those who believe more what is proclaimed over us and proclaim more what is believed on in the world. I want to tease this out in three ways. First, that confessing our common faith grounds us in God. Second, that confessing our common faith unites us to the universal church, the Catholic or universal church. And thirdly, that confessing our common faith invites us into God's faithfulness. Grounds, unites, and invites. Confessing our common faith grounds us and who we are in God. And I think we really need to be grounded. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we need to be grounded for two major reasons. The, the first is that we live in a world of conflicting confessions. People are more religious than they've ever been. They just don't know it. People are inherently religious. You cannot escape belief. You can't escape a worldview. 
And we've never lived in a time with more opportunity for more messages, more siren songs to be sent our way about who we are, why we're here, and what we should believe. Some of you, because you are holy like Jim Gaffigan, anybody like Jim Gaffigan? Two or three of you who are willing to admit it. I love Jim. Thank you, Bill. All right. He's a comedian. He's hilarious. He's pretty clean. You can watch him on Netflix. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do the ghetto Jim Gaffigan voice right now. He does this thing where he sort of asks a rhetorical question, and then he goes into a high-pitched voice to answer it as if it were the thought, the internal thoughts of the audience. And I told my wife about this, and she said, you probably shouldn't. But she's not here. So here's ghetto Gaffigan, right? I mean, you, you, you hear people say this all the time, like, oh, well, well we, don't have, we don't have any dogma. We don't believe in dogma. And you can hear Gaffigan like, but that's a dogma. That's a dogma. Oh, well, creeds are restrictive. Creeds and confessions, I mean, that's restrictive. Well, but what you just said is restrictive. You know, I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual. That's a religion. Can you hear him? Kind of? No, I should stop? Okay. Truth is subjective to me. Truth is based on what I'm feeling as far as my desires are aligned and perceived in the moment. But that's a self-defeating claim because any rational notion of truth has to extend beyond the subjective individual. Or how about this? You know what? You're nothing more than a meat computer in a universe that could ultimately care less, that will die in the death of the sun, but you should really care about justice and being good. Morals really matter. And you found that growing on the morality tree somewhere out there in Santa Fe. The list goes on. And rather than find myself guilty of straw man arguments, I just want to say I see those things in my own life so often. I see those contradictions, not merely externally, us and them. We're not an us and them people. We're an us for them people. So I see these things in my own soul. Because we don't believe by blind faith and neither does anyone else. People are inherently religious. They place their trust for what they believe are good reasons in what they believe to be a worthy object of their trust. And we as Christians are no different. We do not have blind faith. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. We believe in a real, historical Jesus who came, who took on flesh, who acted and worked in the world, who was witnessed in his resurrection, who is alive and well in our souls by the Holy Spirit. We place our trust in him for good, logical, rational, and evidenced reasons because we proclaim he is our worthy object. He is God who can save. But here's the point. Everybody else does the same thing. Whether they've thought of it, whether they're able to articulate it, whether they have attempted to systematize or organize it, or perhaps distill it to the simplicity of a creed, we all do the same. So we need grounding. And I believe this creed grounds us in two ways. First, in the nature of God. I love that when we proclaim the Apostles' Creed, we proclaim every week the Trinity. The triune nature of God. He is one God and in three persons. The Father is the maker and the creator and almighty. His Son took on flesh, came into history, really lived, was really born, really died and truly rose again. But spiritually is our Savior and our hope. 
And at the end of the creed, it's the Spirit who unites us now to the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, which is here. So I love this, right? As Christians, we're not just waiting for heaven, pie in the sky. You know, someday this veil of tears will be torn away and we'll just get to heaven and everything will be great. Jesus said, my kingdom is coming and has come. It is here. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is working in and through his church to bring the kingdom as we do what? Love God and love your neighbor. That's why we brought up Deuteronomy 6 in the readings. Deuteronomy 6 is this famed passage. The Hebrews refer to it as the Shema. It's a creed and a confession that you find in the Bible. There is much to be said about the Shema. There are sermons upon sermons. But I wanted to make one point here. We're talking about being grounded in the nature of God, His transcendence, His triune perfection. But it's more than that. He's personal. One God in three persons. And He interacts with His people in an interpersonal way. Indeed, it's more than that. He loves His people. So the nature of God doesn't just solve the abstract problems of you know, the one and the many and these sorts of things. He is the God who comes, who speaks, who loves, and invites his children to love him in the same way. Now, if you've been in church for more than 13 seconds, you heard that. Grace, love, mercy. But we shouldn't take it for granted. Indeed, when these truths broke forth into the heart of the ancient Near East, this was a scandalous proposition. The pantheon of ancient Near Eastern gods, if anything, were, were cruel, self-centered, bloodthirsty, needy. And their love for you, if it could even be called that, was based upon the condition of your works, your merit, your obedience, your ability to properly fulfill their demands. So to be grounded in the nature of God weekly through the creed not only means that we see him as Father, Son, and Spirit, but we see him as the God who comes and loves his children, whose very nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect interpersonal harmony and love, overflows both into the work of creating and redeeming a people for himself. God does not love you in spite of your sins. This is one of my favorite things about the truth of the scriptures. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and go, oh, okay. Well, I see Mary over there, and I'm going to love the 80% that's clean and holy. The 20%, I'm going to love her in spite of it. He sees you, he knows you by name, and he loves you precisely because you are a sinner. Because apart from him, you're a sheep without a shepherd. That's why Dorothy Sayers, mentioned her before, she was an Oxford Inkling, a contemporary of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, she wrote a wonderful little book called Creed or Chaos. And she made this point that I think is expressed nicely in a quote by Tim Keller. If God is at the center of your life, excuse me, if God is not at the center of your life, something else is. If God is not at the center of your life, something else is. Is. The question isn't creed or no creed. The question is, what do you believe and why? So we're grounded in the nature of God, but also in his actions. Some theologians have referred to this as the economy of God or the way that he distributes his, this, his grace 
in the person and the finished work of Jesus, his son. And my favorite part about the Apostles' Creed is, is Jesus. <laughs> that, the focus on Christ, is what makes it deeply Catholic, universal for all of us who are Christians, for all denominations, for all times and places. Notice that this common faith doesn't say anything you know, about your specific and most likely wrong views of the end times. It doesn't say anything about how you've deciphered the Bible code and now you know exactly which politician to support. And you're definitely wrong on that one. It doesn't say anything about, you know, exactly the, the, the age of the earth and all these other hot button issues. It distills down in three sections and in 12 affirmations, Jesus. And so every week, it's an opportunity. God says, will you confess the truth? And in doing that, guess what? You take your eyes off of yourself, your own truths, your own feelings, your own doubts. The creed is a protest, a protest of our own doubts, not to shove them away religiously and look good, but to doubt our doubts in the love and undoubtable mercy of our Savior. As we confess the creed, we are invited to lift up our heads, to exalt Christ. Jesus is at the center of our common faith. That is what we have in common. And for a lot of us, that's really all we have in common. It's somewhere in our lives, whether we were kids or maybe we were in college or later on in life, by God's mercy and grace, He got a hold of us. We may not have all of our theology right. Thank God you're not saved by your perfect theology. None of us would have a chance. You know, your life is still full of challenges and grief and, and wounds that you're untangling. Things that you can't even really understand inside of yourself that, that rear their head at unfortunate times. Jesus is at the center, inviting us to lift up our heads and say, don't, don't look at yourself, look at me. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. The author, he started it, and perfecter, he will bring it to its end of your faith. So we are grounded in the nature and in the action of God. The focus on Christ is what makes our common faith universal or Catholic. And maybe just to finish by saying, what, why is that important? It's important because there is much false religion in the name of Jesus that portrays our relationship with God as transactional. And unfortunately, it is the cause, in my opinion, of many, many young people, many people, but many young people walking away from their faith. In recent years, there's a famous story about a singer-songwriter duo who worked for many years at a megachurch, who released Christian albums, who walked away from their faith and, and put the whole deal on YouTube. And they basically summed it up by saying the following, you know, we were told to follow the rules and we did. We followed the rules of, you know, sexuality and religion and all these things. We followed the rules and guess what? Life was still hard. Guess what? We still suffered a series of miscarriages. Guess what? We still had a friend that we loved who died. Guess what? We, we still got into fights and had issues in our marriage. 
And their reason for walking away was, we did everything right and God didn't keep his end of the deal. That is a transactional view of the gospel and it will absolutely lead to unbelief. Which is why when we confess our common faith, we are not confessing that if we're good enough, if we're righteous enough, then God will will give us all the things that we desire, but the opposite, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And even though this world has its ups and downs, God will never forsake us. He'll never let us go. And so in that way, our uncommon faith is confessed as a common faith that we as the world can share. To be grounded in God means to be grounded in the promises of His Son. And that's what unifies us. So we're grounded in God, but confessing our common faith unites us to the universal church. It's good to pause from time to time and consider this. What could possibly bring all of these people together? We got some liberals here. Liberals. We got some conservatives here. Conservatives. We have some libertarians here. Bless you. you know. Thank God we have roads. You know, it's, We've got a spectrum. I mean, what could bring all these folks together? We've got some some upper class. We've got some upper middle class. We've got some middle class, lower middle class, and down on the line. As I look around, we have Hispanic, Anglo, Native, Asian, African American. What, or maybe more importantly, who could bring people like this together? And it's actually really hard. (laughs) It's actually really hard, and it's not normal. If you join up for a group on on Facebook, it's a group of people who kind of like the same things you like, do the same things you do, are into the same kind of music or the same hobby. If you go to a country club, it tends to be the same sort of people gathering together to be with people like them. It's really hard to have unity because we are deeply shaped by our culture and our geography, our biases and our assumptions. So the rhythm of grace of proclaiming and confessing a common faith actually reshapes a diverse people into something more beautiful. Out of me, out of my issues, out of the world, and into the God who will reconcile all things. Into the God who loves and wants people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every part of the earth. Confessing a common faith unites us to this universal, heavenly picture of the church. It does so in time, so we should remember that this creed is ancient. Some scholars believe it got its start toward the end of the second century. One of its earlier iterations was referred to as the old Roman symbol, and I love that because when people confessed this creed, they saw it as a symbol that they placed on themselves. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is the truth that I put on my life as I then go out to live my life in the world. And we should remember that it was born in persecution. It was born in the challenges of those who confessed this creed were often putting their life or their livelihood on the line. Likewise, I think there's something good for us in this day and age, a good caution about all the novelty around us. If it's newer and younger, it's not necessarily better. 
The Holy Spirit of God has been at work in his church for 2,000 years. It didn't just start in 1520 with the Reformation. I'm glad for that. And I think we need to be always reforming according to the word of God by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit has been at work in his church from day one. And so in this, we are truly Catholic. We truly are part of the universal church. Catholic means universal. I know it's a bit of a thing to say in Santa Fe, but I think it's important for us to to have this, to confess this together. We are not some weird offshoot. We are not some strange appendage on the body of Christ that eventually the doctor will remove. We are instead part of the universal church, which is why at Christ Church, our services are open to all. All can come and hear the gospel. All who are Christians, who trust in Jesus, can come to this place, can come and feast at this table. You don't need to jump through 15 hoops before you do. So we are united in time and in space. And I love this about the creed. It was originally written as a mission statement. Not a mission statement like for a company, but a missional statement. It was used as a baptismal confession. Adult converts would put their faith in Jesus, and before their baptism, they would say these words. Based off the outline in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which structure underlies the structure of the creed itself. And in that sense, it's the Holy Spirit in that last section that weaves this unity together. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but in this last section, we confess we believe in the person who is God, the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He creates a holy, set-apart, universal church, which is what? A family, a communion, a deep fellowship of diverse saints. And what do those saints do? Because they've been forgiven in Christ, they forgive one another. And they can actually bring this forgiveness out into Santa Fe, where it is needed. Man, we struggle to forgive each other in the world. Road rage is on high alert on this snowy day. And people will struggle to forgive. And yet the Spirit wells up within us such a deep forgiveness that we can walk about this city with the resurrection of the body, the power of the risen Christ, And in all things, know where we are going. Everlasting life. So this common faith grounds us in God. It unites us as the universal church. And lastly, it invites us. It invites us to our faith through God's faithfulness. This is perhaps my favorite part of weekly confessing the common faith using the Apostles' Creed. Because it is a way for us to be honest about our doubts to be honest about our struggles, to feel both the joy and the sting of Luke chapter 12. It is serious. On one hand, everyone believes something. Everyone's religious. I haven't met anyone yet who isn't. On the other hand, Jesus tells us, if you you deny me, you will be denied. If you confess me, though, you will be confessed. Luke 12 reminds us that That none of us can just sit out in the land of, quote, spiritual neutrality and have it our own way. We must choose. It's as if God is asking us the question, what will you do with my son? 
Look at these other options in the world. Do they satisfy? Do they satisfy your soul? What will you do with my son? But we're not left there in our doubts. So again, is doubt a bad thing? By no means. But as we doubt, we must doubt our doubts. And the wrestling brings us full circle to rest. Luke 18. I love that story. Man, go home and you want to do Deuteronomy 6 with your kids and put it on your doorpost and tie it to your head. Go home and read Luke 18 again with your kiddos. Here's this religious person standing there. Man, I'm so glad I'm not like those guys. They don't know everything I do. They're not as religious as I am. Their theology isn't perfect. They're, you know, they're unjust. They're sinners. They're adulterers. They're even tax collectors. And then the tax collector, knowing his need, believing beyond hope that he is indeed being invited into the love of God, beats his chest and says, Lord, if you're real, if you're good, if you're true, and I believe, but help my unbelief, but if, it's, if it could possibly be true, would you be merciful to me, a sinner? Jesus said, it's not the righteous who need a doctor, but the sick. And so in the same breath, we are challenged to ask the question, what will you do with my son? We are reminded about the grace of the gospel, wherein Jesus shows us, or God the Father shows us, look what my son is so desperately wanting to do with you. Come. Believe, trust, would you? If you're a Christian and you've been doubting, come to the living water, trust me. Be with me, get to know me. If you're not a Christian and you've been wondering, is God real? Keep asking those questions. Seek the truth and he will find you. What would, what would it look like for us to go into our city, but specifically to our neighbors, to our friends at work, to the people we always see at Starbucks, to the same cashier you always use at Trader Joe's, to the spots where you're regulars, to the person you're riding up with on the lift. What would it look like to be with them as those who proclaim boldly, like Bethany Hamilton, not in spite of, but because of our sin and suffering? Hey, we are sheep with a shepherd. You may look at me and See someone missing an arm, but I tell you that because of Christ, my arms can wrap more widely around those who are in need or broken than they ever could have before. Confessing a common faith that unites us to our brothers and sisters all around the world right now. One that grounds us in the goodness of God, unites us to each other and invites us to not give up because the promise is that Jesus will never give up on us. Let's pray. Father, we do want to imagine that. I pray that maybe, maybe after today, we would, as we prayerfully enjoy the snow, Lord, maybe you would put someone or some people impressed upon our souls, put their names on our heart to think, man, who can I... Who can I share this with? Lord, we're afraid. We don't want to come off as weird or pushy or any of those things, but may your perfect love drive away fear. May it be not an opportunity to convince anyone of anything, but just to love you and love our neighbor in public. Lord, I pray you'd bring us some names today. 
And I thank you that our names, by your grace, through faith, are written in your book. Thank you for writing us into these rhythms of grace. We do proclaim you are our Lord and our Savior. And we are so thankful that you have set your stamp and your seal and your proclamation of love on us. Amen.